Alrighty, welcome back everyone to part two of episode 11 where we've got our special guest Anthony Van Brown. Um, we have just left it at a place where we, we are going to, I guess, launch into the, the next phase of things that happen in Anthony's life. We've heard a bit of background, we've heard a couple of stories, but um, before we do that, I'm just going to throw to T who's going to uh, read some notes off the back of, of Anthony's book. And the book we will put in the show notes, we'll put where you can track that down, uh, whether it be a physical copy or you can get an electronic copy. Uh, we're just going to hand that over to T and T's just going to read that blowback. So I think it gives a really good snapshot of Anthony. Yeah, and, and it's also a good picture of, you know, what the book is about and what the book's like. I remember I got the first edition of this. I don't know how long ago it was, but um, I got the first edition and, and read it in almost a day. It was, you know, it's the names, the stories, everything about it just um, was, was compelling. But anyway, it, it says here, on the surface, everything looked perfect. Anthony Van Brown was a popular, high-profile high preacher in Australia's growing megachurches, such as Hillsong, and happily married father of two. Behind the scenes was a different story. Believing homosexuality made him unacceptable to God and others, a secret battle was being fought. After 22 years of struggle and torment, a chance meeting forced Anthony to make the toughest decision of his life. So I want to throw to you, Anthony, and we're going to hear all about this story yes so we just finished half of the last episode talking about um trauma and and being hurt and um i'm just going to share with you um an abridged uh version of the first chapter of my autobiography which is called the confession and um you know i have shared this with various pastors and church leaders and when I go into a situation where I'm doing consulting work, it gives people a real snapshot, you know, okay, so this is what I've been through and here I am today, which I think is a miracle. So it was a tragic way to end a successful and rewarding career. I lived most of my life with one ambition to preach God's word. During the last eight years, especially, I'd seen the fulfillment of my lifelong dream. At 40, my entire world was caving in. Watching everything I'd accomplished crumble away by the hour left me weak and in a state of shock. I wept frequently and wondered how I could have lost all I valued in just a few days. There were times I'd feared this might happen, but like so many things in my life, I put it out of my mind, unwilling to face reality. And now reality was screaming in my face, refusing to be ignored. As an ordained preacher of the Assemblies of God Church, I'd invested my life in becoming one of Australia's leading evangelists, flying all over the country, preaching to thousands and youth rallies, Australia's largest congregations like Hillsong. On other occasions, I'd been the guest speaker at national leaders' conferences and had also been invited to represent Australian international religious gatherings. What thrilled me most of all was that thousands had become Christians after hearing me preach, convinced that God was real and Jesus Christ could change their lives. But now it had all come to an end. That April Sunday morning in 1991 was beautiful. The sun shining, the sky cloudless, which blew and the slight chill of early autumn morning had melted around the central coast. Families were getting ready for the usual morning service of celebration, oblivious to what was about to, to what they were about to encounter. 
I dragged myself out of bed, showered and sat with my Bible on my lap, trying desperately to get some words of encouragement for the scriptures to help me to the next few hours. I wistfully flicked through the light rice paper pages of my well-worn Bible. It was useless. The words melted into a blur as my eyes kept filling with tears. An air of grief permeated the Venn Brown household, none unlike the heavy, uneasy silence that settles on a house full of relatives waiting to go to the funeral. Helen, my wife, was putting on a brave face and doing everything she could to pretend this was a normal Sunday morning. Over the last few days, I'd, I'd witnessed a strength in her I'd never seen before. It was difficult to tell what she was really feeling as she'd put her emotions aside in order to sustain the family cohesion. I was really worried about her, though, knowing the stress of our crisis was driving both of us to breaking point. The doctor placed her on medication only a few days before she collapsed in my office after making the frightening discovery. But now it was time to go. It had to be done. The leaders of my denomination told me it must be done as this would be a part of my healing and restoration and demonstrated I was genuinely repentant. The foyer was a usual scene for a Sunday morning at 9.55 a.m. People hugging each other, saying, God bless you, nice to see you, Tony. How's the ministry going? Are you preaching this morning? I tried to smile, but it was obvious to most people that something was drastically wrong. My walk and demeanour was a posture of a broken man. Walking through the crowd, I tried to deflect eye contact. Helen knew the fewer people I had contact with, the better, and with a firm grip of my arm, manoeuvred me through the auditorium. Joining the familiar songs was difficult as every attempt made me cry. Helen stood on one side and Paul, one of my closest friends, on the other. The girls sat with their friends elsewhere in the congregation. There were moments when I thought I wouldn't make it through the service. I never known one could feel so numb and yet be in such pain at the same time. As the service was ending, a fitting of nausea overwhelmed me. My time had come. Kevin, the pastor, closed the service with a special announcement. Those of you who feel Christian Life Centre is your home church, we'd like you to stay for a few moments, please. We have some church business to attend. People that are visiting today, thank you for coming. We hope you enjoyed the service. You're free to leave. What was about to happen would not be pleasant and certainly something not to be witnessed by visitors or non-Christians. Helen and Paul's grips on my arms strengthened. I began to sob, an uncontrollable sobbing deep within that began to shake my entire body. No, Tony, you can't let go. Be strong. Kevin made a statement about difficult things need to be done in churches sometimes and that one of our leaders had fallen. There was an instant gasp from the parts, from parts of the congregation. He motioned for me to come forward. I felt like an old man as I slowly rose to my feet and shuffled towards the front, reaching the podium. I turned around and faced the congregation of 800. I will never forget the faces. 
on the rare occasions when I was in town, I'd preach messages of encouragement and hope from this pulpit. Now, the usual responsive faces were replaced with wide eyes and mouths open in shock. Some who'd already heard the news began crying. Others placed their heads in their hands. Husband and wives clutched each other tightly. Helen had lost her composure and was being comforted by friends. Rebecca and Hannah were sitting near the front crying as well. The weight of my humiliation instantly increased as I became even more aware of what my wife and girls were going through. It wasn't fair. I deserved to be punished, not them. I leant on the pulpit to support myself and counteract the weakness in my legs. I'd rehearsed the brief statement repeatedly in my mind, even though I knew it would take less than 60 seconds. I'm being directed to make the confession general and concise and not to give excuses. Thank God I didn't have to mention the most horrifying detail of all, the one that would have made me the worst of all sinners. My voice trembled as I began. Last week, I preached my last sermon. I'm resigning from the ministry today. I'm sorry that I have to confess to you that I've committed the sin of adultery and I ask you to forgive me. I'm so sorry for the shame I've caused my wife and family, the church and God. Please forgive me. I wished I could have said more, some words of justification or mention my a midlife crisis or being on the edge of a nervous breakdown or burnt out. Now exposed and humiliated, I sobbed uncontrollably. Of course, this wasn't the entire story. I transgressed beyond other disgraced ministers. Kevin and other leaders from the church rushed to my aid, trying to console me, the support of their own, stopping me from collapsing. Friends helped Helen to the stage. She stood beside me. Kevin took the microphone and began to pray. We thank you, God, for Tony's life and ministry, and we ask you to heal and restore him. We pray also for Helen, Rebecca, and Hannah, and ask you to give them strength at this time and let them know your love. We ask your power and forgiveness to surround Tony. Prophetic words of encouragement came from the various leaders saying that God would take this experience to strengthen, restore, and use me in a greater way than he had before. I didn't believe them. I knew my time was up. The entire congregation was now in tears. People were devastated. I could never, this could never have happened. Tony was a good preacher, a loving husband and father. My brief confession had actually created more questions in people's minds. Who was it with? Was it someone in the congregation? When did it happen? How long had it been going on for? Was it a once only four or an affair over time? I knew the gossipers would fill in the gaps. The congregation slowly dispersed. Some moved to the foyer, others walked down the front to offer words of support and a few just held me and went. Ever there was a time I wanted the ground to open up and swallow me, it was then. I didn't want anyone to talk to me or touch me, let alone tell me they loved me. I was so unworthy. It felt like I'd given away the last thing I owned, my self-respect. It was done. 
I made my public confession and hoped things might become a little easier. There should have been at least a feeling of relief, like a load lifted off me, but there wasn't. Just numbness. It was like a funeral and I was a corpse. So much of what I'd loved had died and the man that people perceived me to be had ceased to exist. Had my entire life been a lie? I wondered in view of what I'd done if I could ever be forgiven. Surely I'd live with the shame and humiliation the rest of my life. I wanted so desperately to save my family and myself from the pain and darkness ahead. But no, sin has its consequences and I must pay. That chance meeting with Jason only weeks earlier had set my life on a course I could no longer control. When I was watching you read that, did I see tears in your eyes? Yeah. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't read that. How many years is 13 years ago? Mm-hmm. It's very rare for me to read that without, it, it's almost like re-traumatising. Mm-hmm. But it's in, it's important, I think, for people to people. To, you know, I don't hold back the emotion. I, I, if it's coming, I let it come because it's, it was fucking horrendous. Mm-hmm. And, Tell us you know, about that. What, well, what know, was it like? What to, to well, leave everything to be pulled out from under you? You just it. It was. Um, you have nothing. You know. There, I remember going home after that service and, you know, I just, I used to walk around and bump into furniture. Mm-hmm. I was, I wasn't, I, I wasn't there. I was, I had been destroyed by that experience. And so, you know, um, what was I going to do with my life? You know, the, the things, so, you know, I, I, I went to the, CES office that you know that like the Centrelink. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because you know to get some unemployment, there's no income, unemployment benefits. And I remember sitting there. I mean, this this I've got emotional thinking about this. I remember sitting there, and there's like eighteen year old girls <laughs> asking me, like, you know, oh, and what have you done? You know, like, where's your resume? I've never had a resume in my life, you know. Yeah. Oh, what training have you had? Well, I used to be a preacher. Well, what skills have you got? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and being so already totally traumatised by the experience that I just shared with you, you know, it just kept on compounding. And then, you know, then then there was the the abandonment by many of my Preacher friends. Yeah, well, this is this is my question to you about this, is looking back now, rather than what it was at the time, but looking back now, why do you think you were expected to make a public confession? What what was that about? Why did it have to be public? Why couldn't you have just stepped down, walked away? Why did you have to stand before everyone? It was a new it was not a new thing, but it had been introduced earlier in I think it was in the charismatic movement that there had been a minister who had fallen. And, you know, there is that scripture, um, I, I think it's Paul says, you know, 
anyone who is, is a teacher is going to be judged yep. more strongly. Um, and does it say also that there needs to be a public confession? I'd have to look that up. Mm, I, I think there's, there's something about. Uh, uh, I, I think there's something about before the brethren. There's some sort of. Um, I don't want to say dressing down, but you know what I'm trying to say. But I don't think there's anything about you needing to be there saying it yourself. Ah, uh, no, I think that there was – it had become a bit of a thing. It was new, mm -hmm. um, but not all that new. Like, I was not one of the first. There have been others that I heard. But because of my – I mean, I did all this confession to the national executive, to the – you know. Uh, I, I confessed to almost every single person. Like I, I got my friend, my preacher friends together to share with them, so that they mm. weren't hearing all this stuff on the grapevine. They actually get it from me. This is, and you know, I was really so sorry, and um, yeah. and uh, so it was about being genuine about about repentance because this is like you know, okay, you re you really say you're sorry. Well. Get up in front of the congregation and, and tell them you're sorry and confess that that will really prove that you're repentant and that you're really sorry. That was the basis of it. Do you know? Do you know what I thought when I was watching it? Sorry, Beach, but do you know what yeah. I thought when I was listening to you and and watching you? Is it's like a crucifixion, and I don't say that with any sort of sarcasm or you know, belittling anyone's belief, but. It was that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me moment when you were just alone standing there and, you know, where was God? Where was the disciples? Where was, you know, I'm, I'm using this as archetypes, as metaphors, as stories, but that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, and, and you talk about me and what I went through and the impacts on me, but you think about my, my former wife. You think mm. about my children. Thank God, my children are okay today. You know, my my former my former wife was was more abandoned than I was. Oh, if okay. that's possible, you know, she she was cast aside as well. People did not know what to do. Okay. I remember um, the pastor of the church coming to my place in the next 12 months, if I said three times, that might be an exaggeration. It may have only been two. And he he sat down on our lounge and burst into tears. What was that about? Hmm. I know what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> um, because he had been through that with his father. Okay. He was also a preacher. Yeah. Well, that that's my assumption. But the the fact is that people did not have the capacity or certainly not understanding of PTSD or trauma or counselling to do anything. And I think that some of my friends... The reason they abandoned me was they just had no idea about yeah. what to say or, you know, if they called me, what would they do? And I was being honest with them. You know, they, they there were a couple of times, you know, where people would make contact and, and they'd ask how I was and I'd say, I'm not doing well. Yeah. And, and no follow-up from that? No, no, no. No. I find it hard to... 
honesty was really challenging for some people. Mm. And I had to be honest. Why could I pretend to go, yeah, I believe God's going to get me through this. Yeah, this is a, no, I feel like I feel like jumping off a fucking cliff. Well, and reading your book, you had got to a place where you felt you could no longer live that double life and live in that conflict. So you chose um, to be true to your sexuality. Mm. Do you look back on that and go have regrets about it in that you wish you'd been able to marry up the two? Um, or do you look back at it and go, I had no choice? Um, I... I had no choice. Yeah. There was nothing in my world like, you know, if I would have said to any of my preacher friends or the whole denomination, can you be gay and be a Christian? Every mm. single one of them said no. And that's what I believed. And that was my conflict yeah. was, you know, that this, what I'm experiencing, what I feel is an abomination. Mm. That awful, you know, King James word. So what about, what about you know, the more liberal denominations? I mean, you had spent time in sort of Anglicanism or was it not even there then, you know, where you could actually be gay and be a Christian or, the, or the, is it the, called the Metropolitan Community Church was a sort of a, like a gay denomination, if that even exists? What, what was, why didn't you go there? Because I, I was a teenage fundamentalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and... High five, brother. High five. <laughs> So it was the and, indoctrination? Yeah, it was, you know, my belief is the infallibility of, of the Bible. Mm. And therefore, there are those six passages which talk about supposedly homosexuality. And, you know, I, I, I read all the books. I, I knew all the verses. And so there was nothing in my mind that said this is okay. So... Um, anything outside of that, which the, you mentioned the MCC, Metropolitan Community Church, which was actually founded by a former Assemblies of God minister one year before Stonewall riots. So he was very much before his time. Um, and if, if I would have had any contact with those people, I would have thought, oh, you're deceived. You're the devil. Like, you know, you can't say this so when i walked away from everything i was walking away from god i was walking away from my faith i was walking away from my family uh, because there's nothing in my mind that rec could reconcile those two things it's either one or the other you and know I, you know anthony i i want to tell you a story because in between my time in the Revival Centre, and B, sorry to bring them up again, but um, in between my time in the Revival Centre and joining Great Big AOG, I met a guy who I'm going to call John, and John was a um, medical student. Um, he had come from a strong Baptist family. I didn't know this at the time. Um, we were just clubbing, right, and, and, and he was one of our friends in our group, and, um, and he was gay. And and that was that was John, and he showed me one day the scars on his wrists, and they weren't those little sort of you know horizontal crying out for attention. They were deep, deep scars. He's a medical student, right, right down the veins on both sides, God. very deep scars. And he started to tell me his story about how he was gay and he couldn't be a Christian. But 
what that translated into was he was gay and couldn't exist. And so there was there was nothing about what he shared and seeing the scars on his wrist that said to me anything about choice, anything about uh, a decision of the will. It was life or death for him. Mm -hmm. How would you respond to that? Knowing you know, what I know now. Well, you know, I've, I've been working in this space now, you know, my actually four years before my autobiography came out, I founded a Yahoo group for survivors of what we call conversion therapy or ex-gay, in those days it was ex-gay organisations. And I uh, had 400 people in that group, you know, so... I knew from 2000, so the last 20 years, I have been dealing with people in this space who are so conflicted about the conflict, perceived conflict between their faith and their sexuality or their gender identity that, you know, they are incredibly vulnerable and for them it is it just gets too much for some people and um that they check out which is which is incredibly sad you know um and but this is this is what we are working with and the church does not know the so, incredible harm that they are like they are literally driving people crazy and killing people because of their ignorance about sexual orientation, gender identity, and a few verses in the Bible. Speak more to that, Anthony. Speak more about those verses in the Bible and how, and how you see them now, I guess, but also interweaved into that. What would you say to someone that came to you and said they're conflicted, they had to choose one or the other? Right. Well, you know, what we know now, and what I know now, <laughs> is that those six verses or those six passages, when they, you know, I, I did what most of us do is we just read it in an English translation. We don't know that the word homosexual was put into the Bible, an English translation of the Bible in 1946 for the very first time. Up to that point, it didn't appear. We don't we 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 don't know the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was really about raping angels and what that was about. You know, we don't know about Romans one that that was a pagan ritual. We don't know that one Corinthians six verse nine was mistranslated and was was supposed to have been corrected, but it wouldn't happen for another ten years. In the meantime, the Living Bible, the 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 NIV, these other translations were all based on the RS. In 1946, so there are all these things that were not available to access for us, okay. but they're all there today. You know, I, on my on our website abby.org.au, you go to the audio and you will get all that information, either in audio or PDF. You know, within an hour. <laughs> yeah. So, so are you saying that there's a uh, there are other translations? I think B talked once about. Um, there's another version of that truth. Is that what you're saying? Um, well, 
what there is, not, there's not another version of that truth. What there is, is there's insight into what those verses mean, not what they say. Because you've got to have the historical context behind it. Can I give you an example? Please do. So, uh, for example, um, you know, Romans 1, when people read that, they make assumptions by their own prejudices and by their own experiences that that's talking about, you know, um, gays and lesbians. But if you really knew what was behind that was that um, actually um, Paul was writing that in Corinth. And the top of the hill was the temple of Aphrodite. And uh, there were incredible uh, processions, rituals, um, orgies that went on that he is actually describing in his in his in the first chapter of Romans. He's not talking about me. He's not talking about my gay or lesbian friends in a long term loving relationship. He's talking about straight people in an orgy and an idolatry pag a pagan ritual. The day which everybody that day would have known about it, but of course we don't. So that's. That changes the whole meaning, doesn't it, of Romans 1, when you realise he talks about pet, how they, they're burying their body, you know, yeah. they stop, well, of course, they cut themselves. They cut their testicles off and threw them into a hand. <laughs> I, I, just, I just cringed a little bit, Tony, and crossed my legs unconsciously <laughs> when, yeah, when I, you said I, cut testicles. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like, a, sounds like a party, but, yeah, keep going. <laughs> So I think so what would this, I is, say this is probably a good time for us to call the end of this episode, I think, and go to yeah, the next on, episode. On cutting off your nuts, yeah, let's cutting. put a pin in this one. Because I've got to go and, and have a, a drink or something just to <laughs> calm down from castration <laughs> talk. Um, so, so what do you reckon, be um, in our next episode, why don't we speak with Anthony and hear from him about what he's doing now? Um, the positivity that's come out of this, how people yeah. can um, some, can get help, et cetera. And, and again, we're going to drop this the same day. So we're doing a triple episode today. So don't feel that you need to um, wait for next week. You can you can get this pretty much right away. That would be great. And I'm really interested to know where you're at with God. 